Let's now open the Word of God to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. This month we are going through the book of, uh, of Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2, specifically looking at uh, the passages of Christmas from this gospel. Last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, you're probably wondering what can we get out of the genealogy. Last week we looked at five golden rings. We looked at uh, the five women that are mentioned in, in the uh in the genealogy of Jesus and the importance that they had in the story of Christ. And what a, what a tremendous blessing that is, that even the genealogy finds some, some truth to that. Uh, with this in mind, I invite you to look at with me in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Today we're going to be kind of highlighting verses 22 and 23 in particular, and looking at the glorious truth and the name here of that child, Emmanuel, God with us. What a tremendous passage this is. Um, this morning during Sunday school, we looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and we went pretty in depth on it. I'll be honest with you, we could probably do probably about four or five different messages just on that one prophecy uh, there. And I think, I think I only got through half of my notes this morning. Uh, by the way, Woody is uh, not here. He's under the weather, so that's why I stepped in, and that's why he's not here today. But um, nonetheless, just uh, as we look through this, we were looking at these prophecies. Um, just kind of want to start start out by looking at that word Emmanuel. Verse 23 again says, His name shall be called Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. I want to kind of, first of all, start out with the story of John Wesley. John Wesley and his brother, they're founders of Methodism. Um, and he was born in 1703. And of course, he was known as a famous preacher. And uh, a lot of people were uh, turned Lord and used to the Lord through his ministry. But uh, at the end of his life, he became sick and uh, eventually ended up um, being on his, on his deathbed. And with uh, some of his friends and family around him, uh, he actually, his last words, recorded words, was this. What did he have to say at the end of his life? And he says this, the best of all, God is with us. And he raised his hand, as the witnesses said, he raised his hand, lifted up in the sky, and he said it again a little bit stronger, and he said, the best of all, God is with us. That was the last words of John Wesley. And in a sense, that's really the message that we have here. God is with us, Emmanuel. That's who Jesus is, and that was the hope and the, the confidence and the faith of of John Wesley was in uh, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing testimony. As we think here about 
uh, this Christmas season and we think about the birth of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would never forget the meaning of this season. And what is the meaning of the season? The message of Christmas is really this, that God keeps his promises. When you see even before me is a, a nativity scene, and maybe you have one like that in your home or something like that, or you've seen that. And really, even this should be a reminder to us that God keeps his promises. You understand, when we think about Jesus, we think of, uh, some people think, well, yeah, he was born as a babe in the manger. And then we know the story of Jesus that he uh, lived a perfect life, did miracles, did teaching and all that. And then, of course, he went uh, to a cruel, rugged cross. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. He sent into heaven, will one day come again. And that, that's the message of the New Testament. But we have to remember that there's a lot that we should consider uh, in the life of Christ. And what is that? That it really didn't start in, in Matthew 1 or Luke 2, for that matter. Jesus Christ, really, his beginning was of ancient days, of old. He's eternal, okay? So we have to think in that perspective, but also that over and over, there's prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about this coming Messiah, this Redeemer, this Emmanuel that will come and redeem the world. And the simple message is this. So this is what I want to take courage in today, is this, that God keeps his promises. The fact that Jesus came to this world as a babe in the manger is the fact that simply God keeps his promises and that he is glorified. So how is God glorified? So today, again, we're looking at Emmanuel, God with us. We start out in verse uh, 18. It says here, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or simply as follows. This is how it happened. It's interesting, the wording that Matthew writes here, and it's talking about the, the birth of, of Jesus. And this is how it happened. And it's interesting, the wording that's used here, and this is something different. Why is that? Because what happened in the, in the past 17 verses? Look with me in verse 1, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then starting with Abraham all the way to, to, to Jesus. Okay, the, the genealogy. Again, we covered that last week and with the five golden rings. Okay, and so this is important to look at. This is, so we're putting out a little Bible study time right now, Okay. So it, when we get to chat verse 18 here, that the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or in this manner, it follows this way. Pay careful attention to that because what's happening is that this birth of Jesus is not to be compared. It stands out compared to the other births that happened before that. Because we're finding here, this is a story of, of births of people. Okay, whether it be David, whether it be Solomon, whether it be Uzziah, whether it be Jacob, for example. Uh, all those births that happened, okay, you think of all those births. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and so on. Now we come here to verse 18. So the birth of Jesus was like this. In other words, this stands out. This birth is a lot different than the other births that happened before that, okay? So I want you to understand that the birth of Jesus Christ should stand out to us. There's no other birth like it, Okay? Nothing like this has happened before or since, okay? Because this stands out as really a miracle. It's a blessing to think about that, okay? Remember, Joseph, he finds out that Mary's pregnant. By the way, we, we know a lot more about Mary from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1 and 2 specifically. But here in Matthew, we hear about Mary. But again, the message here is really the message given to Joseph. On Wednesday night, we actually did a little study on Joseph as being a caretaker, 
uh, think Jesus, being a caretaker. Uh, he was a caretaker for Mary and, and for for Jesus. And it's interesting that the one who would uh, be the caretaker or the caregiver for for Jesus, basically he'd be the one who'd be cared for by Jesus himself. Just amazing when you think about that. So as we think about this passage here, we come now to kind of a focal point here in uh, verses 22 and 23. I'll read it again. It says, now all this was done, talking about that she would bear forth a son, okay? All this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying. The word might be fulfilled, this occurs several times in Matthew's gospel. He does it to prove a point. Uh, Matthew is largely writing to a Jewish audience. And so kind of how these uh, prophecies are fulfilled in Messiah Jesus, people should take a note of that. When these things happen, take note, okay? And then it says here, this is the prophecy fulfilled, that which was spoken by the Lord by the prophet, this is Isaiah, saying, verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So this morning during Sunday school, we actually took a lot of time on uh, focusing on the virgin birth itself. If you want to maybe go back, you can watch that on, go back to the, on the church website and you can see uh, the Sunday school hour from that digging into uh, the virgin birth and why is that important and that this virgin is exactly that, a virgin. Um, there are some people that, uh, just do a little brief, and for those who are at Sunday school, you won't mind if I just say this little part here. So in the Hebrew, which is uh, uh, from Isaiah chapter 7, 14. In fact, go ahead and turn that because we'll be kind of flipping back a little bit on that. Hold your place in Matthew 1. Go back to Isaiah 7, 14. I want you to see kind of what's taking place here, okay? It says here, and again, you'll you'll recognize it immediately. But Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, the idea that we have here in the Hebrew is that behold, a virgin, literally the virgin is pregnant, is really the, the thrust of the message. A virgin shall conceive. The virgin is pregnant. By the way, that does not make any sense. If you, if you went to your doctor and said the virgin is pregnant, he'd probably look at you strangely, Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way, okay? So, but as we see this here, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. So that is what Matthew is looking at here and said, this is a fulfillment, Jesus' fulfillment of that, okay? So here we are back in Matthew chapter one. So we talked about the, the virgin birth this morning and that the fact that matter is sometimes you will see or some people will argue that the Hebrew word for for virgin is is alma and it, it is translated little translation as a young unmarried woman and th- that is true but you have to look at everything in context remember when you have a question about a verse you read what you read you do the 2020 principle read 20 verses before and 20 verses after and we we just went in depth about that about king ahaz and all that in matthew in isaiah 7 but remember this that really a young unmarried woman it implies what virginity that's what it implies. And it wouldn't be much of a miracle if just some ordinary woman had a baby. I mean, that happened all the time in Jerusalem, okay? So this is very specific and very important. That's why it stands out. And Matthew is definitely seeing that. In, uh, in, the, in the Greek, when you look at Matthew chapter 1 in verse 23, Matthew 
is saying this, his name, or the virgin shall be with child. And, he, and the Greek word there is parthenos. Parthenos is strictly virgin. So in other words, the virgin birth is very, very important. Let me just say one thing too, before we get into Emmanuel, that's kind of the focus of the message is the name Emmanuel today. But why, it needs to be understood. Why is the virgin birth important? And I would say it needs to be believed. The virgin birth is a really a essential doctrine that each and every us need to understand and to believe it, okay? So the virgin birth is to be believed for two reasons. And I like how uh, Michael Rydelnik, a Jewish uh, believer and scholar, says on this. Number one, it was to be a major sign to confirm Jesus as the Messiah, as his position as the messianic son of David, okay? In other words, the virgin birth was a major sign to confirm Jesus' position as the messianic son of David. And we talked about that in Sunday school. Uh, in Isaiah 7, the, the line of David, the kingly line of David was at stake. He had enemies breathing down uh, Israel, uh, Judah's neck, okay? And the threat was this, that they were going to take out that king, King Ahaz, who was in the line of David, and they would replace him with someone not of the line of David. If that would happen... God's plan and promise to David that there would be someone on his throne from his family to sit on the throne for generations, that promise that God made would be thwarted, would, would fail, okay? So God is giving a sign to the house of, of David and really to Israel, to the Jewish people. And as uh, readers, we, we benefit from it too, okay? That we see here that God has promised that uh, the, Jesus, the Messiah, would be the son of David. Okay, the Emmanuel will be the son of David, King Emmanuel. I want you to think about it. When you think about Emmanuel, think of King Emmanuel. He would sit on that throne, and of his kingdom, there would be no end. Okay? The second thing to understand of the virgin birth is this, that the virgin birth is related to the deity of Jesus. It's related to the deity of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God. Okay? Jesus is God. Not your head? Yes. I hope you believe that. <laughs> okay. Jesus is also man. He is what we refer to as the God man. He's God, fully God. He's man, fully man. Jesus, when he came to this earth, and there's a lot of different beliefs out there on this, has been around for centuries, that Jesus became, he actually stopped being God, only became man. Some say he was like a dual personality. There's all kinds of beliefs out there. But nonetheless, we believe that Jesus is God, fully God, man, fully man. And in this, when we think of the virgin birth, the promise of the virgin birth from Isaiah in 700 years is fulfilled in Jesus' birth, okay? But the virgin birth is related to the deity of Jesus. Why? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So here's the thing. God with us. Let's break it up. God with us. So think about the God in, in, this, in the title, God with us. God, that's deity. Okay, that's the title of Jesus. He is God with us. And then now that he is with us, think of the with us part. That is his identification, who he is. He is with us and also his nearness to us as well. Jesus came to be near us. To be with us is the idea. So God, deity, is with us. His identification and his nearness to us. When we think about this, uh, think of, about who God is. I, I love what the, uh, Luke's gospel, he said, the angel said to Mary, 
uh, when he told her that she was going to have a child, he says this, And the angel of the Lord an uh, said unto her, unto Mary, uh, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing, or that offspring, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. In other words, the child you're going to have, it's not of human effort, okay? This is what God did through Mary. And that child will be called the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is God, very God. He's man, very man. So let's look at this. What does this mean, God, with us? We're back here in Matthew 1. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. So what is the God with us? So when we think about God with us, we think of this, first of all, that God is with us and God was with us. In, in John chapter 1, how does John 1, 1 start? You might know this verse by heart. In the beginning, what was the word? The word was with God and the word was God. Okay, I'm going to continue reading on in John 1. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, was life and the uh, life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. By the way, that was in page two or three of my notes from Sunday school that we never got to. But uh, kind of an amazing thing. Jesus came at a very dark time, uh, a time of hard, hardship and oppression. We talked about this morning, okay? Jesus came at that very time. But the thing is this, that Jesus came uh, as God with us. And we're talking about the eternality of the Messiah, okay? God was with us. In the beginning was the Word. Words was with God, Word was God. In other words, the Messiah is eternal. He's divine. Um, and some people say, well, that's a, a Christian. You know, one thing is interesting. I'm going to kind of stop for a second here from my notes and just say this, that a lot of times when you talk to, uh, to our Jewish friends who, especially those who are religious, one thing you'll notice is this, that they will say one of the objections to believing Jesus as the Messiah is they say that, the, that the Messiah is human. He is not divine. Okay. That's, that's what they believe. And part of that is, is rabbinic teaching throughout the centuries, that, that the Messiah is strictly human. He'll be a great leader, maybe, very, maybe empowered by God, but he is not divine in himself. He is not God. And that's one of the objections that they have to believing Jesus, because we believe Jesus is God, who is the Messiah. Well, in Jewish thought, theology, the Messiah is only human. He's not divine. And so you can see there's some barriers in doing that. However... Where do we find out that Jesus is or the Messiah, let alone Jesus, is the Messiah, is, um, is he eternal? How do we know that? Okay, because of a couple of things. I'm, I'm breaking from my notes because this is important. Okay, this is kind of page two or three. I, I just have to do this. It's good. Um, go with me back to Isaiah chapter uh, seven. Okay. I think the Lord just wants us to focus on some of these. This is so important, I think, to understand this. This is the eternality of the Messiah. If God is with us, and, and we're kind of linking this two together, Emmanuel, God is with us. So again, back in chapter seven, uh, let's go back to chapter six. We're going to just do a five, let's do, I'll bring it down to four minute. Four minute review of Sunday school. Okay, Dave's looking at me. Okay, you got this, right? So we're going to try to do this. Okay, remember when you think of Isaiah, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah starts out, really uh, chapters 1 through 12, we talk about uh, there's judgment coming, Israel's rebellious against God, and uh, there's, there's, gonna, there's a cost for their rebellion, okay? They can't get away 
with this wickedness forever. God is going to send two nations against them. The first one is Assyria. Assyria comes in 722 BC. They take northern Israel, and of course they oppress. Remember, Hezekiah had to deal with that too. Okay, and then uh, Babylon comes. Babylon is the second country that comes, and they will uh, defeat Israel. We know that in 586 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar, they take away uh, Judah as well, and the Jewish people go into exile. Okay, so with that in mind, there is a uh, rebellion, idolatry, and justice. God will purify them as a fire. And there's a hope of a new Jerusalem with justice and peace for all nations. But here we come to Isaiah chapter 6. So think of all the frustration, the wickedness of Israel in chapters 1 through 5. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, we see of this, this is probably a passage we know pretty well, of Isaiah's vision uh, in the temple, of this heavenly vision. He sees God and he says, What woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. What does the angel do? The seraph comes, takes a coal from off the altar, puts it on his mouth, and what happens? That coal burns him, but it 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 purifies him. Remember, that is a symbol of holiness, God's holiness in the temple. Okay? He comes in, and Isaiah is purified through that. And what does Isaiah say? Verse 8, whom shall I send who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And that's a great missions passage. And it is, it really is. But the fact of the matter is, was Israel or was the Jewish people going to respond to Isaiah in his message? No, the Bible says, and we kind of stop there, but in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, or, or actually through the end, basically, talks about you're going to go to people who don't want to hear you. They don't want to see you. They don't want to pay attention. They won't believe you, is the idea. And at the end of Isaiah 6, we see here that uh, God is going to take them away. There's going to be a remnant. And uh, basically, they're going to be chopped down like a, an oak tree is the idea. Israel's going to be chopped down because they're, rebel- they, they're not going to listen to you. But in verse 13, at the very end, it says here, and so actually, let me um, see use the whole verse. But yet, it, it, in it shall be the tent that it shall return, it shall be eaten, the teal tree, and as the oak whose substance is in them, and they, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. In other words, there's not going to be much left of Israel. They're going to be chopped down like a tree. Who's going to do the chopping of the tree? Assyria and Babylon. Okay? They're going to do that. And then it says here, but the holy seed shall be the substance. What's left is the holy seed. And they go, well, what's the holy seed? And really the question should be, who is the holy seed? Who is that? Who's going to spring up from that root, from that stump, if you will, of Israel that had been chopped down? I'll tease your brain for a second because... Who is going to come up as the root of the, or the branch of, of David, the, of the stump of Jesse? Okay? We're talking about Jesus. This is a little bit of a teaser for that. We talk about Ahaz in chapter 7 of his rebellion against God. He doesn't ask for a sign. Okay? He cho- chooses not to believe. Okay? And then God says, oh, I'm going to give you a sign. Verse 14. Okay? 714. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. By the way, the you there is in Hebrew is plural. It's not to Ahaz or not just to you who are reading it. It's to the house of David. It's to, and to a larger extent, the Jewish people. It's going to come through a very difficult time to see Emmanuel shall come. And I want you to think about this as King Emmanuel that's, that's coming, okay? And so as we think about that, now we'll go to chapter 8. What, what will it look like? The Messiah is going to come, but he's going to come in very difficult times. And look with me in verses 20, uh, chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. 
It says, and they shall pass through it and hardly, and hardly bestead and hungry. They shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king, their God, and look upward. Verse 22. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. In other words, Israel is going through a period, going to go through a period of great darkness. Very big trials that is going to happen to Israel. Okay? So, but remember, God has promised through King Emmanuel that the line of David will not be extinguished. Okay? It will not be cast off forever. It's not going to happen. Okay? But Israel's going to go through some dark times. Now, the light starts to dawn. Look at me in chapter 9, verse 1. This is amazing when you read, throw this together. Nevertheless, the dimness or the darkness shall not be as it was at her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. It's talking about here the areas of northern Israel. This is the areas that were affected by Assyria that were taken to captivity. The darkness of this land, guess what? There is a dawning that's going to come. Light's going to dawn on his people, okay? Where is that light going to come from? How is it going to happen? God will promise it. He says, I'm going to fulfill my promise. How does he do that? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, okay? You know these verses. If you start singing it, God bless you. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and, for, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, and upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here's, the, here's a, a little bit more unveiling of who Emmanuel is. Who is King Emmanuel? He will be this child born. This son is given. He has these four titles. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And then here's the thing of his government, of his, of his kingdom. There shall be no end. And upon the throne of who? David. In other words, God is going to keep his promise to David. He's going to do it through King Emmanuel. And he says, there shall be no end. In other words, that phrase there, shall be no end, talks about the eternality of, of the Messiah. Okay? If you don't believe me, let's go a little bit farther here. Okay? By the way, the names here that are mentioned here, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, there's only one person that could ever be described like that. God. Okay? This is deity. Names uh, reflected the deity of this, this King Emmanuel. Now, let's talk about the future coming of Messiah. Again, times are bleak. A remnant will be saved. Assyria and the enemies will be broken. But look with me. Remember that seed in chapter 6, that holy seed. Who is it and how is it going to spring forth? The answer is given in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says here, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Here's the point of this. The line of Jesse, the family line of Jesse, or of David, for example, when you go through Isaiah's time and you see the enemies that will be surrounding Israel, and you see even the children of Israel going into exile, and then 
I want you to think of this with Matthew's genealogy. Remember all the way from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way to Joseph, you know, through David and all that, through Solomon. Think of that. By the time you get to, to Joseph and Mary, the line of David looks like a, like a dried branch. The root is not much there. In other words, there's not a whole, much hope. Let me just say this. If there was to be a king over Jerusalem and over Judah during the time of Jesus, well, before Jesus, who would that but would have been? Joseph. Think of this. I want you to think of it this way. Joseph is the prince. Yes, the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, should have been the king in the line of David if that line would have continued on. But where do we find the king, Joseph, and Queen Mary, who was also from the line of David? Where do we find them? Little beaten place called Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And all of a sudden they had to go to Bethlehem. They had a very humble birth uh, for Jesus in a stable. Isn't this amazing when you think about this? That the story of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus is like this. He comes out a root out of dry ground, basically. Where is their hope? Where is that, that time that, that shall happen? So here's the thing. There's a future coming of Messiah, all right? But the branch shall grow from his roots, okay? Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 talks about that root. Of, who has believed our report? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow before them as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. This is the line of Jesus, for that matter. But guess what? There is hope. But I want to focus again on the eternality of the Messiah. Messiah or Emmanuel. Go with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. I'll give you a few extra minutes to find it because it's probably in a part of the Bible you're not, don't go too often. But nonetheless, Micah chapter 5. And these are again another, another passage you're familiar with at Christmas time. It says here in verse 2, now it's interesting in Hebrew, this is actually verse 1. But in verse 2 of our Bible, it says here, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, who is to be ruler in Israel, who is goings forth a been from old, from everlasting. Okay? So again, the, this one who will come from Bethlehem, this Emmanuel, this King Emmanuel, who will come to be, again, how do we know he's a king? Because it says he's to be a ruler in Israel. Kings are rulers. All right. And so whose goings forth have been from wool from uh, everlasting or from sometimes you'll see it ancient times. But the idea is eternity. It's from a long period of time. In other words, never had a beginning. The king over Israel that God promises will come. Emmanuel, King Emmanuel will not have a beginning or an end. He is eternal. That is the point of this passage here, folks. So God is with us. He's been here from the beginning. Very, very important. By the way, it's interesting here of how that will come. And this is a verse we don't go to very often. Micah chapter 5, verse 3. Look at this. Therefore, will he give them up, up until that time, give them up to their enemies. In other words, Israel will be facing their enemies until that time when she which travaileth have brought forth. Who is that? She which travaileth brings forth. That's the virgin. So in other words, Matthew, or Micah 5, 2 and 3, actually verse 5 here, basically is a parallel to Isaiah seven fourteen. The virgin shall be with child and shall have a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So in other words, this is very important. What will happen in the end of verse 3? Then the remnant of his brethren shall return 
unto the children of Israel, and shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord God, his God, and they shall abide, and now it shall be great unto the ends of the earth. Uh, this is just, this is really amazing, mind-blowing, that there is a promised future for Israel through this ruler who has no beginning or no end. He's eternal. That's King Emmanuel. That is God with us. That's what we have here. So with that in mind, uh, let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. So we see here that God is with us, this eternality. Now let me ask you this. As we look at the story of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible, when was God with his people? Go back to creation. Genesis 1 through 3, God creates this world six days, seventh day he rests, but he makes mankind. He makes Adam and Eve. And what do we know about God and his relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden? That God was with them. God walked with them in the garden. So I want you to think about that. God was Emmanuel with them, with Adam and Eve. Things were great. Things were complete. Things were at peace. But what happened? How did it get to a point where God was not with us? The fact that God is promising that God will be with us, that means there was a time when God wasn't with us. How did that happen? Because of Adam's fall, we sinned all. Because of the disobedience that took place in the Garden of Eden, that fellowship with us and God was broken. Our sins have separated us from a holy God. Sin's curse has separated God and man, holy versus unholy. But in spite of that, we see God in his grace giving us hope because God promised a redeemer. He said that of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. Okay. In other words, that God promised a redeemer to crush the serpent's head. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. God promised that a redeemer would come through David, uh, through David's line from the line of Judah. And so the question is this now. This Redeemer is coming, but they're still waiting for it. But how can a holy God dwell with unholy people? That's really the big question in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, okay? How can a holy God dwell with unholy people? Genesis 1 through 3, you have a holy God with a holy people. And in, in um, Revelation 19 through 22, you see that brought back together, Okay. But here in the middle of that, the majority of the Bible, that's a big looming question. How can a holy God be with un, or dwell with unholy people? We see that God with us is foreshadowed. How is God with us uh, foreshadowed, his presence foreshadowed? When the tabernacle was constructed, God told Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus 25, verse 8, he ordered them, build me a sanctuary that I would dwell literally in them. And true enough, God uh, orchestrated the tabernacle to be situated in the middle of the camp. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years, the tabernacle was situated in the middle of the camp with three of the 12 tribes on each side of the tabernacle. So God's presence was literally in the midst of his people. The, the Hebrew word that's used there really has the idea of an intimacy, a personal connection, a nearness to that. God wasn't just simply here. He was literally in amongst his people. Very, very beautiful. At the end of uh, I, uh, Exodus chapter 40, we see the dedication of the temple, the dedication of the, te uh, the, te uh, the tabernacle, that God's Shekinah glory, his presence literally filled 
that tabernacle that Moses even himself could not enter into that presence. A same thing happened when Solomon builds the temple uh, in Jerusalem in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 13, that the priests, when they were done, they said the prayer, God's presence spilled the tabernacle, the Holy Holy Soul, so much that the priests could not enter into it. It was such a holy place. And again, the question is, how can a holy God, pure and perfect God, dwell with an unholy people? How can that happen? You see this, because of Israel's sin and constant rebellion, we see the, the promises here in the pictures of the tabernacle and of the temple, but now, on a practical note though, we have to understand this, that, that not just anyone could go into the temple. Not just anyone could go into the holy place or the holy of holies. Only certain priests could do that. And only one priest, the high priest, could go into the holy of holies. Your regular Jewish person couldn't even think of that. Okay, so how can we, all of us, including many of us who are a Gentile, how can we do that? That's a great question. And here's the point of this. If you look at Israel's history, you see a pattern repeated. Even going back to Exodus and Deuteronomy, through the kings and even Isaiah, what happens with those who sin are in constant rebellion against God, even as Israel was, what happened to them? They became exiled. They were kicked out. They were taken away. They were exiled from God's presence. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and guess what? The Jewish people were exiled. In the year 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Again, the Jewish people were dispersed. The God with us, the Son of God is with us, has been exiled. And what happened in the first exile, actually, where was the first exile in the Bible? Think about this. The first exile in the Bible happened at the Garden of Eden. What happened? Adam and Eve disobeyed, and what happened? The angel... What happened? Blocked the entrance and kicked Adam and Eve out. And where did they go? What direction did they go from the garden? East. Where is east? I'll give you a clue in the second clue. When Israel was kicked, or when they went into exile, Babylonian captivity, where do they go? Babylon. What direction is that? East. So that pictures from Eden being kicked out to the east. And now we have here in Isaiah's time, there's going to be an exile coming. Where are they going to go? East. And that's an exile really because of their sins. That's what's happening. It's an exile because of their sins. Now God in his promise is bringing Emmanuel, God with us. So we see that God was with us, and but we see that God came to us. And here's the blessing of, of Christmas. Blessing is this. The Bible says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made of a law to redeem those that were under law. Pretty amazing when we think about that. He was made of a woman. This is, the Bible says in John 1, 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What we call this, this miracle is called the incarnation. The incarnation, it's kind of a big word. What does that really mean? It simply means, think of it, in flesh. Think of it as this act of God taking on flesh, Jesus taking on flesh, this is his infleshment. Think of that, his infleshment. We also see in, in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus became the form of a servant, took on uh, the likeness or is made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus took on flesh. How did this happen though? How did Jesus take on flesh? How did that happen? 
we go back to, well, you can go back to Genesis 3.15, but specifically from Matthew's point of view here, he's going back to Isaiah chapter 7.14, that the virgin shall bring forth a son, shall be a child, bring forth a son, and call his name Emmanuel. So it was done in a miraculous way. He, Jesus, he was born, because he was born only of a woman, and was born of heaven, really, was born without sin. So it's amazing when you think about this. Jesus came to us. God came to us. Emmanuel, God with us. And here's the blessed thing about us. I like what Charles Spurgeon said this. Here's the benefit of knowing that God is with us. Charles Spurgeon said, If God is with us, let us come to God. We need no priest or intercessor to introduce us to God, for God has introduced himself to you. I'm going to say that one more time. This isn't good. Spurgeon says, if God is with us, Emmanuel, let us come to God. We need no priest or intercessor to introduce us to God, for God has introduced himself to you. Jesus is God in the flesh. God, very God, man, very man. What's the blessing of this God with us? God is with us and through the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. It's interesting how Matthew begins his gospel. Jesus comes to the earth and he's the fulfillment of God with us. How does Matthew end? How does the gospel of Matthew end? And I want you to turn it with me and I want you to see how this really comes together in a beautiful way. Matthew 28. At the beginning, we see God is with us. And now we go to the last words of Jesus to his disciples on this earth. He says in verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, we know these, these verses. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world, Emmanuel. Matthew introduces us to Jesus as Emmanuel. God is with us. And Jesus himself, the Emmanuel, King Emmanuel, saying, I am with you always. There's only one person who has the authority to say that, and that's the King, the Son of David. There's only one person who can say that. So folks, Emmanuel, God is with us. What a blessedness that is. So we think of this Christmas time, and we think of God fulfilling his promises of the babe in the manger that we have here. God keeps his promises. This is a beautiful picture that we have here, folks. Never forget the blessings of that. I go back to close this message by saying this. Remember John Wesley's words. How do we live our life? Our life should be lived in the promise and the hope of God. And just as Wesley said on his dying breath, that the best of all is God is with us. And I pray that today we would take comfort from that very fact and we would say each day, the best of all, Emmanuel, God is with us.